90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well, John. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. This week, we're excited to be talking to Dr. Jim Head about Venus. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Jim, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into uh, astrogeology or whatever your preferred nomenclature for your field is? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We actually had a discussion about that uh, many, many years ago, and uh, because the key thing was uh, astrogeology sounded good, but then that's really about stars, and it's going to be a couple more years before we can do geology of stars. So. People settled on planetary geology, and I like to broaden it to planetary geosciences, for, for example. And the way I got started was I was professionally trained as a stratigrapher. Um, I my, did my PhD thesis, thesis uh, on the Devonian carbonates in the Appalachians, the Helleberg group, looking at paleoenvironmental stratigraphy. And then um, during a lecture, uh, one of my mentors, Professor Tim Much, a really amazing guy, um, he was about six foot three and we always said, well, he can he can see the horizon, and we're all kind of like, we can't, you know. And so he walked over to the window and uh, kind of looked out the window and uh, turned around, and he said, you know, there's just no fundamental problems left in Earth's stratigraphy. And uh, we're, we, uh, what? You know, that came a year before finishing your Ph.D., and you find out from your advisor that there's no fundamental problems left. And... Um, and we kind of like sat there with our mouths open. Well, what are we supposed to do? And he says, well, why don't we apply what we know about the Earth from remote sensing and turn that towards the planets? And we then knew he was totally crazy, totally crazy, because <laughs> this was 1967, 60, yeah, about 1967. And, uh, you know, the field of planetary uh, geoscience was uh, really a gleam in a couple of people's eyes, uh, but not really in existence. So... He went off on a sabbatical the next year, leaving us scratching our heads. And, um, and you know, it turned out that when uh, one thing he did teach us was, like, as you can imagine from that discussion, how to think outside the box. <clears throat> and so I, uh, looking for a job, I got a college placement annual um, from, uh, a, you know, the, it, it basically it, most people I have to explain what a book is, but it, it was a book of jobs. And... Um, so I turned to the back and looked up geologist, and it said page 15 to 27 and, and 48. And I thought, wow, what's that outlier? What's on page 48? So I turned to page 48, and there's a picture, a full-page picture of the moon, and simply the words, our job is to think our way to the moon and back. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, how do you do that? And there was a little phone number in the lower right-hand corner, and I called it and um, and uh, got an interview. It turned out it was with NASA, and uh, they were looking for people to do systems engineering, which was thinking your way to the moon and back. Of course, I'd never had a course in engineering, and I, I had no idea what systems engineering was. Um, uh, people talk about the imposter syndrome these days. I was an imposter, uh, <laughs> certified. You know, here I had my little card that said uh, systems engineer, and I had no idea what that really meant. But quickly I learned it simply meant our job is to think our way to the moon and back. And so my first job, like a postdoc, but a first job was actually working with the Apollo astronauts 
to train them in geology. We took them all over the world to help to pick the landing sites where they go, help pick the experiments, and then train them uh, in lunar geology so that, in fact, um, when they went to the moon, uh, we would be in mission control uh, during their <clears throat> expeditions on the moon, the scientific expeditions. And then when they came back, we would debrief and go over all the data. So it was just completely amazing. And uh, I'm still looking for limestones, but, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, that, that really was a, kind of a... <laughs> Not a 90 degree turn, almost a 180 degree turn. And it was great. Uh, and so that experience was just instrumental. I've been uh, studying comparative planetology ever since. And, um, and it's just incredibly exciting. And of course, we're still trying to figure out those formative years of Earth history. So it all comes back to the Earth. So that's how basically I got into the field and I've been doing it ever since. I feel like if that was my postdoc experience, I feel like I would have peaked early. You know, how do you go? <laughs> <laughs> like, is it just downhill from there, working with the Apollo astronauts? I mean, really? <laughs> well, y y you know, they. it's interesting because they. you continue to work on the data, and they've all remained friends uh, to this day. And in fact, I've had three or four emails back and forth with uh, Dave Scott, the commander of the Apollo 15 mission today, and he's totally inquisitive about the results we're finding and... Um, and, uh, you know, what's the next thing? And, uh, you know, what should we be doing with NASA and so on? So it really is an ongoing thing. And it, it's a quest because the thing about the moon was that it was a beginning. We began to um, really understand what another planetary body looked like. And then we quickly asked the questions, what about Mercury? What about Mars? What about Venus? And how does all this relate back to the Earth? So it was really an exciting, exciting quest. Um, which, uh, you know, we're still, we're still exploring these mysteries. I mean, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, so so it, it hasn't seemed at all like a, a peak and a, you know, kind of depressing trough at all. It, <laughs> it, it just, I, I tell my students every year, this is the best year you could be coming into planetary geoscience. And, and I, you know, I, I must seem hypocritical, but, uh, but it's, t it's totally true. The more we learn, the more questions we have. Uh, the more exciting the technology is, it uh, enables us to um, to actually do things we never even dreamed of uh, 40, 40, 50 years ago. So one thing that we talked about early on in the, the intro to this series of shows was how much older data from spacecraft and lunar expeditions gets used. And is there any difficulty in pulling some of that older data now that technology has changed so much in the last 30 years? Not at all. In fact, you know, the very wise people initially um, in the Apollo program and at NASA uh, and the federal government <clears throat> realized that technology would um, change with time, that is, technology for anal analysis of the data. And so uh, quite wisely put parts of the collection um, into storage, basically, so that it wouldn't be destroyed or compromised in anticipation of, of new technology being able to ask new questions. And so uh, here at Brown University, for example, um, a good example of that is Dr. Alberto Saul. Um, uh, he uh, analyzed the Apollo 15 green glasses. These are like pyroclastic glasses with new technology just a couple of years ago and was able to determine that, in fact, there was water in, 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 in the um, glasses, which these are pyroclastic glasses. So, you know, that's an indication of what is actually in the mantle. And that completely revolutionized our thinking. Before that, it was thought to be that the moon was extremely dry. This was consistent with the big 
hypothesis of the moon being formed by impact of a Mars-sized object into early Earth, and the moon accreting from the ejecta from that. You know, it had to be really devolatilized, or the, 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 the gases had to be blown off and, you know, away from that. But that revolutionized our thinking about the moon. So that's a good example. We get continue to get new data, uh, new results from the Apollo samples and the observations that the astronauts made. It's not to say we don't have additional data. Right now, we have the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in orbit around uh, the moon. And early tomorrow morning, I'll be on yet another telecon where we're talking about the plans for the orbiter and exactly what we're trying to look at and so on. So ongoing data collection uh, is also critically important because it helps us to complement this treasure trove of material we have from Apollo. So I think that that's something to um, think about as we go through and we talk to all these people about the different bodies in the solar system is the importance of actually getting hand samples back, right? Absolutely. Uh, sample return is, is critical critically important. Um, we, we have samples from Mars, oddly enough. Um, there are meteorites that have been blasted off the surface. I actually have one right here on my desk. Um, and it's, um, it's awesome to think about this, um, but the trouble is you also need to see where they came from. So exactly what was the location that this sample was formed in? You know, which part of the surface of Mars did it come from? Uh, what does the context look like? And so Right now, we're working on missions, the rovers, the Curiosity rover. In 2020, the United States, Europe, and China are all sending rovers to the surface of Mars. And the U.S. rover will actually cache samples. It will collect samples and uh, pack them so that they can be recorded, sorry, they can be recovered um, by um, a spacecraft at a later date, hopefully not uh, too long from now, maybe in the late 19, the late 2020s or maybe the early 2030s, another spacecraft will go and recover those samples. So yes, it's really important because the details that we can make measurements on uh, in the laboratory are, are superior in many ways to what we can do um, in situ, like just at the surface uh, on Mars. Things are getting better. Uh, the Curiosity rover is a dream compared to what we thought we could do decades ago. But still, bringing samples back is, is the holy grail for sure. So, so following up on that, you know, Jim, we asked you to actually talk about Venus today, which we don't have any rocks from, right? Uh, not that we know of. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, again, you know, people say, well, why do you go to Antarctica to collect collect, uh, <laughs> collect meteorites from the moon and Mars and, the, and asteroids? And the answer is not that they're like a magnet there, but the answer is, that is to say, all this, you know, these rocks are flying through space and there's something at the South Pole that makes them all fall onto the ice. Quite, <laughs> quite the contrary. They're, they're falling all over the planet, but it's sort of like, well, which one in your backyard is actually from Mars? You know, the, the beauty of uh, the South Polar region is that um, they're falling onto ice. And so you, you can recognize them. You can say, hey, that's really different. Um, and that must be from somewhere, uh, probably not below, but above. Um, so we, we actually can... Um, find rocks and you know we're looking for things that might have come from Mercury. Venus is a little more difficult because not only does it have to get off the planet but to get off the planet it has to get up through the atmosphere so uh, <laughs> it would take a huge impact to do that and we don't think we see any of those um, that are probably uh, large enough to get rocks off and then have them come uh, to Earth. 
So what do we actually know about the, the formation of Venus? It's interesting that a lot of our information about the formation of the planets comes from the very well-founded hypotheses that all the terrestrial Earth-like planets and all the planets in our solar system essentially form simultaneously from a collapsing uh, uh, rotating cloud of, of gas and dust uh, into a, you know, a formative solar nebula type thing. Um, <clears throat> so we think they all formed at the same time. And you know, within a few tens of millions of years, that's, that's pretty well documented to be the case. So we know it's old. Um, it's Earth uh, age as all other the planets are. But, of course, the surfaces are different ages because of the internal dynamic aspects of it, okay? So, for example, uh, on the Earth, plate tectonics is such that, um, you know, the crust and lithosphere are, in fact, resurfaced and pushed down into the interior and remelted, and then they come up again as a mid-ocean ridge, and the process continues on. Uh, so, uh, s s you know, two-thirds of the surface of the Earth is in fact less than 5% of the total history of the planet, less than 200 million years old. So that's good news because we can watch and see how it forms. Uh, only a tiny percent goes back to the first half of solar system history. We're woefully ignorant about the nature of the first half of Earth history. <clears throat> so if we take a look at other planets, uh, we can say, well, do they tell us something about that early history? And the beauty of solar system exploration has been that we've started to go from the moon, which is one quarter of the diameter of the Earth. And the moon is like a radiator. It's so um, small, the surface area to volume ratio is such that it cooled down very quickly. And that means that it stabilized its crust and lithosphere so that it preserved the geological record of what was going on in that first third to half of solar system history. Whereas on the Earth, that's all pretty much been gone. Okay, it's, it's all pretty much uh, been destroyed. So the Moon gives us a clue. And then we go to Mercury. It's a third the size of the Earth. It too looks like the Moon. Instead of a multi-plated planet, it's a one-plate planet, a single global lithospheric plate that's been stable for billions of years. We go to Mars. It too looks like that. And then we ask, well, wait a minute. Venus is the same size as the Earth, more or less, the same density. It's the closest planet to the Earth in the solar system, so it must be most like the Earth. Does it have plate tectonics like the Earth, or does it have a cratered surface like the smaller bodies? It's a really big test. So the, the reason Venus is so important <clears throat> is because, in fact, it provides a test of these ideas about what the smaller planets look like compared to what the Earth looks like. The smaller planets are very different from the Earth, very complementary, but not evolving in the same way. Well, and those planets are much easier to see, right? Venus has this really impenetrable atmosphere as well that you were alluding to, talking about getting rocks, you know, past escape velocities to get off of it. And I imagine that's quite a bit of an issue as well. Absolutely. The problem with the atmosphere uh, is incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a dense CO2 atmosphere, sulfuric acid clouds. Basically, it's opaque to... Um, uh, at visible wavelength. That means if you were in orbit around Venus, all you'd see is the upper cloud decks. And that's frustrated us for years. Uh, that's why Venus has been so um, <coughs> uh, difficult to study. Um, and, and that's why it's taken so long. In a way, you know, we started with the Earth and we asked the question about the Moon with the Apollo program. Then we went to Mercury with Mariner, then to Mars with other Mariner missions, Viking missions, and so on. 
and we're sitting there waiting for the prize, which is Venus, okay? And, and you know, it's like, okay, so <clears throat> it's fits and starts because we started the, doing this with uh, atmospheric probes. Let's send a probe through uh, the atmosphere and see what the temperatures are on the surface. And so the Soviet Union um, sent quite a few of these probes uh, that made it all the way through to the surface and actually uh, survived on the surface long enough to make measurements and take pictures. And that, that was amazing. That was one of the first things that I tried to do in studying Venus is go to the Soviet Union and work with the Russian scientists uh, to learn what they were doing and how uh, all of these things were coming together and you know how we could work together to, um, to understand what the surface of Venus looked like and maybe build towards a global picture with radar orbiter missions and so on. So what was it like working with those uh, those Venera missions that landed on the surface? I imagine that the data, uh, every little bit of it was pretty precious because I don't think they were able to last that long on the surface, right? <clears throat> That's true. The the, uh, the 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 spacecraft didn't land didn't last. Excuse me. The spacecraft did not last very long, uh, an hour or so at the most. But in that time, they were able to actually uh, measure the mineralogy and of samples. They were able to do some experiments and they were also able to take images, panoramic images around the surface. And of course that's what um, we were really interested in looking at uh, when we started working with the Russians. And so we went there um, and worked closely with them. Um, it was very exciting. Uh, we actually ended up getting all the digital data for the Venera missions. Uh, this took quite a while. We had under This was the Cold War, so the Soviet U.S. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, competition, let's put it, uh, was, was intense. And uh, so we were able to establish a Brown University, Vernadsky Institute, institution to institution um, uh, agreement. And part of that agreement was to exchange information. So we were ac actually able, uh, I remember carrying a, a large digital data tape out of the Soviet Union one time and and um, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, I, we're really uh, this is incredible to be able to do this. We turned it over to NASA, of course, so that you know the, uh, our colleagues could share in it. But I was coming back through uh, Washington D.C., and as I was getting on the plane to come back to Brown, they said we're going to have to X-ray that. And I said, oh my God, you know, <laughs> I've come all this way, and and so we had a long discussion, discussion, and I finally got somebody to. Um, to not not to get us let us not put it through the X-ray, but oh. but it was it was very exciting and the surface was amazing. It was rocky in some places, it was platy in others. Uh, you could see alteration products, um, you know, just just amazingly intriguing. Uh, it was superb engineering, wonderful um, analyses, and it was just such a pleasure to start working with the the Soviet scientists because they were they had the same types of questions that we did, and we of course used this as a way to build towards the future which was to take the questions that we had and try to convince each of our space agencies to uh, fly orbital missions to Venus, where we'd actually go into orbit and then look at the surface um, of, of the planet uh, in a systematic way uh, to map out the total surface of the planet. And so what are some of the techniques that you would use on an orbiter since the atmosphere prevents any kind of <clears throat> optical inspection? Well, it's basically like a cloudy day when you're flying in an airplane. It's all it's all related to radar. <clears throat> the radar is really critical. So we we actually put on the spacecraft in orbit around Venus a radar instrument that can penetrate down through and actually um, uh, take an image, if you will, of the surface. And we got 
trained in this in some ways by um, the Earth-based observatories. So the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico and a Goldstone Observatory in California were both able to send radar waves to Venus and we were able to actually get images of the surface of Venus you know, at, at coarse resolution, but nonetheless something to begin to recognize uh, the morphology and the landforms and the scattering properties. So it was very exciting to be able to do geology extremely remotely in ways that we hadn't been used to it, that is to say at radar wavelengths. But if you think about it, this is exactly what Tim Much was talking about. We took the techniques from the Earth in that class that he taught the next semester, and one of them was radar, and we learned how to look at the Earth with radar, and then of course that's what stood us in good stead when we were, um, in fact, uh, working with the Russians, you know, 20, 30 years later. So what do we think the surface looks like then? It's really amazing. Um, you know, the first missions were Venera 1516 to Soviet <clears throat> radar missions in the 1980s. And then the second one was the Magellan mission in the late 80s and early 90s um, of the U.S. mission. And so the Venera 1516 missions mapped um, the upper about 25% of the surface, the high latitudes, uh, northern high latitudes of Venus. And it's just amazing. I mean, it revealed extremely heavily deformed terrain with cross-cutting faults and features that made up about 10% of the surface. These look like, in many ways, like continents. It had uh, plateaus with folded mountain belts around them. I mean, my gosh, if, if you ever thought there would be a continent on Venus, this was the one. It was called Ishtar Terra. And then we saw lots of evidence for rift zones, just like the uh, essentially East African rift, but triple junctions, if you will. Uh, we saw lots of evidence for huge quantities of volcanic plains. We saw very unusual features that looked more like um, granitic uh, extrusions. Uh, and uh, it, 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 you know, basically as the, uh, first we got the Venera 1516 data and formed a framework for understanding this. And then we got the Magellan data where we sat at JPL and watched Venus essentially rotate underneath the spacecraft and we built up a global picture, of essentially 100% of the surface at a, a kilometer resolution. Uh, it would be like draining the Earth's ocean basins and having two or three years to map the whole thing. It was amazing. And, and this revealed a lot of really fundamental similarities to Earth, but also some basic differences. So what were some of the uh, differences that were striking when you were looking at this data? Well, the, the first question we would ask, of course, is what is the average age of the surface? So we were stunned to find um, only about a thousand craters on the total Earth-sized surface of Venus. Earth is the same area as Venus. So we only had about a thousand craters. And so, of course, the first thing we asked, well, where are they? Is there like the cratered highlands on the moon and the more lightly cratered Mare? Uh, on um, the moon? And the answer was that they're very evenly distributed across the surface. So there are no areas of very old terrain and no areas of very young terrain. The surface of Venus looked almost exactly the same age everywhere. It was almost randomly distributed and we could not distinguish that one area was older than the other. But we also saw um, you know, these folded mountain belts. We also saw this highly deformed terrain. We also saw huge areas of volcanic extrusions, volcanic centers, hundreds of volcanoes, etc. So this was like the Earth in a lot of ways, but we didn't see any evidence for plate tectonics. If there had been 
active plate tectonics, part of Venus would be young and part would be old, just like the ocean basins are much older than the continents. But in fact, it's all the same age. So we were sure we weren't on the moon, Mercury, and Mars, but we were also sure that we weren't on the Earth. We, we, we found our dreams fulfilled in that Venus was like the Earth in its average age, less than about a billion years, but that it did not uh, have plate tectonics at the present to explain that. One of my colleagues, Tom McGetchen, we would always sit down before a mission was launched and say, well, look, do you think it'll look like A? Uh, do you think it'll look like B? Or do you think it'll look like C? And he would say, don't forget D, none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> and, and indeed, that's what Venus turned out to be. And this is why we have to explore, because you could say, oh, it's going to look like the Earth, or it's not going to look like the Earth. But you go and look, and it's entirely different. Absolutely amazing. So Venus has been such a surprise. We do not know, um, uh, you know exactly uh, what its history has been, because its surface is actually very young. And somehow, something has happened with Venus to give us this highly tectonized, highly deformed terrain, followed by, we can look at the stratigraphy, we can look at superposition, followed by huge amounts of volcanic outpouring, flood basalts, followed by rifting, and then a few volcano, uh, volcanic flows that come from the rifts. So all that happened in an extremely short period of time, like less than a few hundred million years. And so, you know, how does that happen? One idea is, in fact, that Venus actually doesn't go laterally plate tectonics, but rather the crust builds up uh, by accretion, if you will, by flowing out lava flows, lava flows, lava flows, and then it thickens the crust sufficiently that you, re you reach the basalt eclogite transition, or to put it another way, the rocks become denser, and then that in fact founders and negatively um, you know pulls down the crust and so some people think that every few hundred million years uh, Venus um, in fact completely overturns its surface <laughs> and so that would explain all the deformation and of, of course it's its foundering then fertile mantle will come up and uh, essentially a lot of magma will come out from that and then it will create huge lava flows like we see so, you know, the scary part is that Venus may be actually undergoing these um, proxismal kind of like just major overturns every hundreds of millions of years. And, you know, maybe that's how plate tectonics started on the Earth. Maybe that's what will happen with the Earth in the future. We're losing heat. Maybe we'll seize up and plate tectonics will stop. And then maybe it'll build up vertically and maybe we'll overturn. These, these are ideas that uh, we hadn't even considered before. Um, so it's really exciting. Um, even more exciting is the fact that we're working with our astronomer colleagues now who are finding Venuses around other stars. Uh, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, there's 50 or 60 Venus-like objects out there and all the uh, exoplanet people compounding on the door. What does Venus look like? What's going on? You know, and we're going, you tell us. You, you've got more Venuses than we have, you know. So... Uh, so it's really amazing. So we're also learning a lot from the exoplanet people. It's just incredible. So in between these overturning events, is the surface geologically inactive then? Well, if we think about it right now, you know, we think about planets losing heat by different mechanisms. So if you think about the Moon, Mercury, and Mars with their 
solid lithospheres and one-plate planets, they're losing their heat largely by conduction. They're really good radiators, you know. Um, it, 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 so it, it basically, it's just like a radiator. It's losing heat uh, by conduction. The Earth loses its heat primarily by plate tectonics. It's a, it's a recycling aspect, okay. And then the innermost of the Galilean satellites, EO, um, has active volcanoes right now. It's being um, distorted between Jupiter and the outer planet, uh, the outer Galilean satellites, so that it's almost like tidally kneading, like kneading like you do with dough, or taking a paper clip and bending it until it breaks, heats up and breaks. And the, the EO is losing its heat by advection, so the molten magma is coming up and dumping the heat out on the surface. So that's another way to get rid of heat. Right now, Venus is losing its heat just by conduction. You know, it's the, it, the, the, the number of volcanoes is insufficient. Um, and so, you know, to, to lose all the heat, so it's losing it largely by conduction. And maybe, maybe in the, you know, at that buildup of the heat below the surface will in fact cause it to subduct. Maybe there'll be a phase of plate tectonics. We really just don't know. That's why we're trying to uh, uh, convince NASA and ESA and other uh, agencies to send new missions to Venus to help to understand this. So I really think that's interesting what you were saying about maybe this is a future of plate tectonics on Earth because I feel like, you know, when I teach paleoclimate classes that I often point to Venus's atmosphere and talk about that being the future of Earth. So that's uh, a really interesting concept that I hadn't really thought about in terms of plate tectonics. You know, maybe it's going to look something completely different however many billion years from now here on Earth and Venus is our model for that. I think it's a, I think it's a really valid approach. You know, when we um, there are predictions. Most people don't think about the future in geology. They tend to think about the past. Um, but if you if you set your mind to it and think about how planets lose heat, with our terrestrial planetary bodies as examples, you know, it's been predicted within maybe four or five hundred million years, um, the uh, the the essentially thermal power that powers um, plate tectonics now will become such that the plates will essentially solidify and, and seize up. And then, you know, it's going to look like Venus. It'll just stop, okay? Um, there may be other ways. I, I would predict that, you know, there would be more buildup of heat below the lithosphere, and um, and maybe that would usher in, uh, you know, a lot of volcanic activity on the planet, all over the planet. Uh, it might look more like Io at that point, because the heat comes out by advection, for example. So the future of the Earth is... Um, it's just not clear at all. Both, uh, you know, we tend to focus on the short term, which is uh, climate change, which is very real. Uh, you know, the only thing constant in geological evolution is change. You know, it's not a question of who's doing what to whom. It's just a fact. Okay, the Earth has never been in the past the way it is today, and it will never be in the future the way it is today. That's just a fact. Okay, <laughs> so how do we deal with that? You know, and so. When we're looking at the, the surface of Venus, since there's all this volcanic activity and overturning, are we primarily looking at things like basalts on the surface then? Or are there other, uh, you know, is, are there sedimentary rocks there, for example, that we see? That's a very good question. So the, uh, basically from the radar data and the images um, and the essentially uh, measurements that were made by um, the Soviet landers, uh, it looks to be basaltic in nature. Um, but we do see uh, a number of areas which are, we call them pancake domes. They look like actually biscuits on the surface. Um, and uh, these are very viscous magma. Uh, and it's pretty clear that parts of Venus have undergone 
sufficient different differentiation to produce more evolved magmas. I mean, they could be granites, they could be dacites. Those are the kind of things we're thinking about. They're not all over the place, uh, but there are uh, they are in sufficiently, you know, uh, abundant areas that it's definitely part of the petrogenesis that is the generation of rocks on Venus. And there's no geophysical data that we have to understand exactly how differentiated the planet is, right? Well, we do have, um, with the Magellan mission, we were able to get gravity data. So we went into a circular orbit towards the end of the mission to get relatively high resolution gravity data. And we find things like gravity anomalies, um, you know, over the areas. For example, there's a place called Beta Regio, which has a, uh, a rise of hundreds and hundreds of kilometers across. It's got a triple junction in a way, like three rift zones that come together. Uh, and we see volcanoes dotting that feature. That has a very distinctive gravity anomaly, which is signaling to us that there's upwelling mantle material below that. And there's a number of other areas that we can look at. Um, and we can use the gravity data and the topography data uh, to get at a little bit of crustal structure. What's the likely crustal thickness of these plateaus? They look to be thicker crust, like the, like the continents on the Earth are. Uh, so, you know, we're building up a little bit of a picture there about the geodynamics as well as the geological uh, aspects of Venus's evolution. So one time when we were um, trying to keep the mission alive, uh, I had to go to NASA headquarters and brief the Associate Administrator for Space Science. And I said, look, let's not cancel the mission now. Let's sit and wait and watch the Venus gravity signal and the images because, hey, Venus may overturn tomorrow. And uh, boy, wouldn't it be fun to watch that? Okay. <laughs> oh, serendipity would have to be in full. It would. There. <laughs> but it, As, but it, it worked probably for other reasons, though. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really disappointing to me that, you know, it, there's nothing to be done with PMAG on Venus, right? There's no magnetic field, and now you don't have plates that move around. So, yeah, this is a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but you know we we're the moon and and Mars and uh, you know we have incredible crustal anomalies on the on the surface of Mars, uh, and 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 the moon as well. The rocks are definitely magnetic. Uh, it was a magnetic field earlier on. That's a big mystery too. We're trying to figure that out. So all is not lost. <laughs> I, I shall endeavor to persevere then. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you've been involved with many many missions? What are some of the more difficult parts of working on such a, a large team of people as are involved in a space mission? Well, I, you know, I actually see it not so much as, as a difficulty, but as a, um, as a synergism. You know, one of the things that Dave Scott, the Apollo 15 commander, and I like to talk about a lot was in Apollo, um, you know, here I was in my, I don't know, 20s somewhere, um, and uh, we all worked together. It was science and engineering synergism. We got the engineers excited about what we wanted to find out. They got excited about trying to help us make our dreams a reality. And we literally worked shoulder to shoulder. So in Apollo, it was the most wonderful example you could imagine. You know, if you think about it, and you know, um, uh, if somebody started to be a little bit of a personality jerk, for example, you know, it, basically people would look at their watch, tap their watch and say, hey, we're launching next Tuesday. Can you just cut that out? And, um, you know, it was incredibly mutually supportive. Um, I, I, you know, I, when I saw the movie Apollo 13, uh, I saw Jack Schmidt, the Apollo 17 lunar module pilot, a good friend of mine who's a geologist. Um, 
I said, Jack, that movie was the closest I've ever seen to what it was like being in Mission Control. And he said, well, Jim, there was just one problem. And I said, what was that? He said, everybody who was playing uh, the people in Mission Control was too old. I said, oh, my God, you're right. He says, don't you remember the, <laughs> the, average, the average age was in the 20s in Mission Control? <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, you're right. Wow. Think about that. Think about that. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it, it was such a great place to start that I've tried to make that a model since that time that, you know, I go take my students, we cultivate the engineers, uh, we talk about, you know, what their dreams are, how, boy, you know, they, they can help you do things that are just miraculous. And if they find out what your interests are, then, you know, that motivates them to really do um, uh, some amazing things, uh, amazing things. If you can imagine by Apollo 17, uh, we were doing things, um, you know, that were, were, when I started on Apollo 11, were just like not even able to be conceived of. So I, I would say the teams are really productive. And rather than being competitive, uh, it's much more synergistic. And it's a great pleasure uh, to, work, uh, to work with these teams. And several years ago now, probably back in 2011 or so, uh, I was able to intern down at NASA, and I got to talk with Gene Kranz just a little bit. And <laughs> one of the things that struck me when he was discussing the Apollo missions was the implicit trust of everyone on that team, that they were an expert in whatever they said was the truth, and we're going to go with it that way for this mission. And he talked a lot about the teamwork as well. So that's, that's interesting to hear that echoed from somebody else that was involved with the program. Yeah, it, it, it was amazing. I mean, I think uh, if you can imagine somebody like me right out of grad school uh you know i would have as much say as anybody else if, and you know everybody looked around if anybody has anything to say please say it so if you didn't say it um that was the problem okay um and you know i, I geez just going around a table and you know, you know here i was i was working you, you know we would do these simulations the whole mission control would be um set up as if it was a mission so they could practice the mission and you know i was myself and Hiram Baxter, an engineer, we were the crew. We would go into the basement of mission control and we would land, we would get out of the spacecraft, we would pretend we were on the moon, we would do a whole bunch of different things to test the different parts of the system. And, uh, and you know, uh, just to make sure that when it really happened, it, it all worked really well. I mean, I was just a postdoc for Christ's sake. I mean, it was a, I was, it was a real job, but you, people understand postdoc better. And, and yet, you know, the trust was there. Hey, you know, it, you know, we got we got to we got to make this work. You know what I mean? And again, um, think our way to the moon and back It's like incredible. And that whole concept of thinking your way to the moon and back, that is what systems engineering is. And that is also uh, stood me in good stead in my own science. I don't just think, oh, you know, what's under this rock over here? Um, it's like, gee, we really got to think of this as a geological process, as a systems approach. And it's been so much more rewarding to think about, you know, thinking your way to the answer and back. You know, it's it's really incredible. I think that's a really important point that you keep bringing up to that we definitely need to get across to students is that, you know, the answer to some of these processes might not be something you've envisioned or even seen before. Right. There's always that you know, what is D something that hasn't even existed yet. So even though a lot of the problems are still solved, you, not everything is, right? Absolutely not. I, I just remember <clears throat> along those lines that I was sitting at my office with one of my colleagues, Lionel Wilson from Lancaster Uni University in the UK, 
one of my students came in and she was searching for a um, uh, topic for a master's thesis and she came in and I could see her look along the bookshelf on my wall and uh, at, at volumes 1 through 37 of the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference Proceedings and kind of roll her eyes a little bit and she said uh, I just can't think of a something um, unique for my master's thesis and Lionel looked up and said oh don't worry almost everything is not yet known <laughs> and it's like <laughs> you know it, uh, that that is so true we only we can't even formulate questions beyond about one to two sigma beyond the mean of what we know if you follow me on that and I always tell my students that the way to really you know you need to be you need to be somewhere in the median because you need to build up a fundamental base of knowledge but you need to explore the one to two that I'm sorry you need to explore the two to three sigma outside the frequency distribution of your knowledge and next to the frequency distribution of atmospheric physicists of uh, you know deep metal petrologists to uh, you know other disciplines and that's where in that two to three sigma overlap that is where a huge amount of action takes place in scientific discovery if you can just simply explain for example uh, to an atmospheric physicist exactly what your problems are they will have insight into those that you won't even have thought of before and vice versa so if you can set up a collaboration with someone uh, who has that complementary interest and also has a personality that permits you uh, and them to listen as well as speak uh, that's gold that's just gold it, that goes just along with the whole you know we don't exist in these little boxes right you know geology just like you were saying about you fought to get it called geosciences because everything is intricately connected and i think we forget about that sometimes and get in our own tiny little box and don't make those associations that really lead to the big breakthroughs i think that's true and we're currently right now working on the climate history of mars the early history of mars uh, the geologists look at it and say it was warm and wet we have running water um, maybe warm and arid, but you know, no question. We have dendritic valley networks, fluvial activity. We have lakes, etc. But the climate modelers can't make that work because of the faint young sun and the way that Mars works. They think it's cold and icy, and so this has been really great. So I work with the climate modelers, and we try to, you know, test these models. Is it warm and wet? Is it cold and icy? Is there something in between? And that's been a really good example of the two to three sigma overlap, where it's been really productive uh, to get their insight. Uh, to understand what their motivations are, to help explain to them what constraints our observations put on things. So it, it really is critically important. So Jim, I have down here a starred question that I wanted to make sure to ask you because a lot of my students, I teach field geology, right? So I teach our field camp and the field class before that. And that's not really a job that exists so much anymore. Maybe it did back in the day and it doesn't now, but I mean, this is important when we're talking about future space missions, right? Because if we quit teaching field geology, everyone loses those skill sets and all that knowledge, and then you go send a geologist to Mars, what are they gonna do? Absolutely, this, the, the field is really critical, and that, that is a fundamental component of my research as well. I've had five seasons in Antarctica, um, in the dry valleys, working on Mars-like environments. I, I've been to the bottom of the ocean a couple of times to look at essentially high-pressure volcanic eruption environments to, to, to see what Venus eruptions might look like um, and of course a lot uh, to the northern uh, high latitudes, Svalbard for example, and to 
um, a lot of different volcanic eruptions on Hawaii and, and Mount St. Helens, etc. The field, you, you, you just, you, you have to be in the field uh, at least uh, for a, a, a part of your time to, to get a feeling for the reality as well. And I think it's critically important to do that. Uh, not only that, but if you, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of problems just simply require field observations. And, you know, you can't just do it from, um, uh, you know, theory. Uh, theory is important, uh, but you got to get out and take a look. For example, my my um, work in Antarctica has really changed my whole view. I, uh, five seasons in Antarctica, you know, I, it's like I'm on Mars every day, but I can breathe. And so, you know, you start to think about things. You immerse yourself in this. You get a sense of the cold, for sure. Uh, and you can see how processes operate where there's very little liquid water involved. Uh, and that's just been really instrumental in helping us crack the code on Mars climate history, for example. So if we were able to remove any technological limitations and you were able to go live and work on Venus for a month, what would you want to investigate? I think I would go to the folded mountain belts. Fortunately, there's one or two with volcanoes as well, so I'd combine that. Uh, you know, the the forces involved in, in making these folded mountain belts make you think, gee, there has to be, you know, folded mountain belts. We think convergent plate boundaries and plate tectonics. But are there forces involved where you can actually get that kind of folded mountain belt activity without plate tectonics? Or are they signatures of previous plate tectonic eras? So I think I would... Uh, camp out um, in, in one of the mountain ranges in the Ishtar Terra region. So do I, some, some field rock mechanics. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. fortunately on Venus it might be uh, easier because they're probably fairly squishy. Not really, but you know. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to mention one other thing, getting back to you, you know, the, the, your question about the field. Uh, you know, field training for the astronauts is really critical. They're in orbit. We, we do this all the time with them. We, we I've worked in astronaut training since the Apollo program with each new class, and we're, we're having sessions coming up in the not-too-distant future here for the new class. And it's just great, um, because they will, in fact, uh, you know, uh, sharpen their uh, observation skills, and, you know, it's a skill set that goes way beyond just understanding the Earth and rocks. It's observational, it's problem-solving, and so on. So they're definitely being trained in the field as we speak, literally, um, the new new astronauts and all the existing astronauts, and they will be ready when they uh, get ready to go to Mars. And I think, you know, in my job in Apollo, only one astronaut, Jack Schmidt, was actually professionally trained uh, as as an astronaut, as a geologist rather. But um, Dave Scott, the Apollo 15 commander, got so excited about the geology that uh, his wife pulled me aside one time and said, "Jim, gosh, you 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 know what you've done? I've had to take a night course in geology just <laughs> just so i can talk to dave for crying out loud she was she was kidding but i considered that a job well done you know exactly <laughs> <So>. that's <laughs> so. the highest praise as a yeah, teacher you yeah. can get that's fantastic and and dave 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 was so you know he was so excited when he got out on the out of the lunar module at the apollo 15 site uh he told me when he came back he said jim it was so much fun doing the geology that I didn't even know I had my spacesuit on. Now you know, you know when you look up and you see Earth, not so close. You know what I mean? Uh, and you know that's that's got to be a, that's got to be a commitment of a of a really uh, well trained geologist there. 
Well, Jim, is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I, I think that it's really been important to place the Earth in the context of the terrestrial planets and other planets in the solar system. This perspective is is critically important. You know, when I was a graduate student, we didn't know very much about the seafloor. It was just becoming um, known. Uh, uh, you know, the the artist rendition of Marie Tharp and Bruce Hazen and so on. I have one under my, underneath the glass on my desk just to remind me about this. You know, this it was another planet for crying out loud. Uh, we didn't really understand how that worked. And in the same way, reaching out and doing comparative planetology is, is really, really critically important. We learn from these other planetary bodies and I never cease to really come back to the Earth and understand it much better uh, after understanding these other planets. And then of course today we're, we're you know, we've, we've visited Pluto. We're beyond Pluto now. And so we know this neighborhood um, and we're now exploring comparative planetary systems. We're working with our exoplanet colleagues to say, hey, how does our solar system look compared to these other um, bodies, these other solar systems, these systems around other stars? It's not the same. They're wildly different each time we look at one of these. What's that all about? Are we unique? Probably not. You know, uh, it puts us into context as well. One of my colleagues many years ago, Rodney Brooks at MIT, used to talk about the retreat from specialness. Not too many hundred years ago, we were the center of the cosmos. Then it became clear, um, as my wife likes to say about some students, they haven't gotten the call from Copernicus yet to let them know they're not the center of the cosmos. Um, but you know, then you keep going and you realize, wait a minute, we're, 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 we're in orbit around the sun. Then we realize we're not the only planet. Then we realize we're a solar system. Now we realize that we in fact are uh, you know, not so special as a solar system. And what Rodney pointed out was it wasn't so much a retreat from specialness, but a route from specialness. <laughs> you know, we still think we're unique from a life point of view, uh, but I am certain, given all the bodies out there and all the planets we're discovering, that, you know, we're not unique. And so the quest is, is to continue to broaden our horizon and put us in a context, ever larger context, uh, of, of, of the reality that's um, that's out there so it's that's why even though apollo was an incredible first job it's it's a quest you know we'll be going to alpha centauri uh in decades it might be with microchips etc but it won't be long well that's a an excellent viewpoint <laughs> <laughs> I think to have of this ever expanding view and if folks want to keep up with the work that you're doing where's the best way to to find you on the internet and keep up with your work well basically we have a planetary geoscience website here at Brown um, I, I, yeah, I'd have to kind of like look for it right now but I can do that Brown uh, just Brown planetary geosciences and it'll come up uh, so it is www.planetary.brown.edu and my email is james underscore head at brown.edu and I'd be happy to hear from anybody um, and uh, you know there's a number of other social media I'll send you along uh, that as well alright great well we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show and talk about Venus as well as all of the other very interesting projects that you've had a chance to be a part of 
Well, this has been really a lot of fun. So, um, uh, Shannon, make sure you tell your students the field is the only place to be. <laughs> I am certainly going to do that, Jim. And, Thank and, you so and, much. And make sure <laughs> make sure they get in line by all the astronauts that want to go to these other planetary bodies. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, and behind me, okay, in line. Uh, right. And me, me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, Shannon, I don't know about you, but I am questioning all of my career choices ever now. <laughs> Me and too. And thinking about uh, going into planetary geoscience. Exactly. Uh, and the good thing is, you know, everybody's got imposter syndrome, so it's fine. We'll totally fit in. <laughs> uh <laughs> Well, I think that one thing that we definitely learned from Jim was the importance of communication. And I think we're going to talk about that in uh, Fun Paper Friday, aren't we? Yeah, so it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday! Yay! You know, I'm actually in my office, um, but my cowbell fell behind my desk because my kid put it there, so... <laughs> <laughs> we almost had dual cowbells. Um, but so, yeah, communication between everybody seemed to be a key point in, you know, getting anything off of the planet Earth, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I can think of no other field than engineering and geoscience that is more well okay maybe medical field yeah. is a contender mm -hmm. here too filled with jargon mm -hmm. and we've talked sure. about this before but we're coming back to yes. it because listener joe sent in a fun paper and said you didn't talk about this enough <laughs> and it's it's hard and i mean they say this in this paper because it's hard to Unplug yourself from the jargon because it's what you're used to day in and day out, right? Yeah, and so this is, oh, I'll link in an article in NPR News Story as well as a conference abstract by Christine Anderson Cook from Los Alamos that's called Hidden Jargon, Everyday Words with Meaning Specific to Statistics. In the abstract, she talks about statistics specifically, but really it's every field has this uh, sort of double jargon that we don't know it's jargon. Jargon, Right. I mean, she talks about ones that I realized, but then she talks about ones that I didn't even realize, right? Um, and so a lot of these go into, there's lots of jargon, right? So she says something about, you know, you wouldn't say to your uncle when he says, what are you working on? You wouldn't say broadband asymmetric acoustic transmission, right? Like that's really jargony. Um, but there's other jargon that has dual meetings, and that's where you can really get into problems because both the speaker who's using this word and the listener who hears this word think that they both understand what each other is saying, and they're not. <laughs> and it's more confounded by some different fields have the same jargon words, but very subtle different twists <laughs> that the, the jargon is used to emphasize that subtle twist to people in that field. And now they're talking about two different subtle twists. They don't recognize that they're using jargon. And in the, in the paper, they say that this is the, the best disguised form of jargon and they call it double masked jargon. <laughs> uh, and they said it's actually really hard to even find, right? Because you're like, oh, I know what that word is. So you don't even recognize it as jargon. And see, in PMAG, we get rid of this because we talk about a thing called remnants when we're talking about what magnetization is left over and we just misspell it. So remnants is spelled differently than remnants. So, you know, there's a way to get around it. And that haunted me in every PMAG paper I ever wrote. 
<laughs> so I won't I won't let word accept the PMAG spelling because then I know I've done it correctly, right? If I've got little red squiggles <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, but I digress. Uh, so double mass jargon. Yeah, and so if you look at, in, in the field of statistics specifically, there may be some of these more detailed words like kriging or probate regression that are obviously jargon and we explain them to our students for sure. But what if I say words like mean or causal? Right. Or We all know what those mean, right? Exactly, but not in terms of statistics. Well, I mean, maybe some people do, but some people don't. And you're like, causal, okay, I get that. This causes this, but mm, it's a little bit different. I, I just imagine statisticians hearing someone that's not a statistician say that something is regressing to the mean oh. and just break into cold sweat. <laughs> Man, I almost broke into a cold sweat there when you said it. So yes, I imagine <laughs> so. <laughs> the four statisticians that have ever listened to us just ripped out their headphones. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so there are some strategies, of course, that you can try to use to deal with this in terms of thinking about what you're saying, and if that word is really a generally well-accepted word, but even then, if it's well-accepted in your field, like, you know, I would say the word friction. <laughs> Not any. I, I know if I say right and state friction that I can't go to somebody on the street and they know what that is, but even if I say the word friction to someone on the street, the the idea that they're going to think the same thing that I'm thinking is very unlikely. Right, exactly. Uh, the one that always catches me is significance because, I mean, again, it's a t statistical word, but it also, significance is different for every sort of experience. So it's not like something is significant because it's unique. You know, it's significant because the math says it's significant, which is different in health sciences, which is different in math, which is different in any field. So that's the one that always kills me as the most like scary disguised jargon is significant. Yeah. And I think that is one where, you know, statisticians says, okay, it was significant, but is it significant in the <laughs> word that, uh, <laughs> in the common uses of it, to us, significant means it, it matters. Whereas in statistics, okay, well, it passed this test, and okay, it was better than 5% against the null hypothesis. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's significant, but is it significant? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, we're already down this rabbit hole. It's not going away. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I love this. In this NPR article, they're talking about the double mass jargon and causation is one of those things. But this is one that I never really thought about is knowledge. Yeah, so... <laughs> oh, yeah, this was weird. <laughs> to, a, to a philosopher, they point out, you cannot know something if it is not true. Yeah. So I can say, I know that eating chocolate is good for my heart, but if it turns out that's not actually true, I didn't know it. I believed it. There's a distinction. Yeah, this one was... This, this got intense. I sat here and just thought for a while after reading that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so, in, in that case, my question then to send all the people that also listen to philosophy podcasts down a rabbit hole is <laughs> do you believe that you know what knowledge is? Oh. <laughs> and there we lost the other four people that listen. <laughs> 
um, this is this is really interesting. Because um, what do you do about it? You know. Yeah, and I I don't know if there's a lot we can do other than trying to be precise and verbose, <laughs> which is exactly. why language was invented. <laughs> certain words in language right exactly that's just what we need is more words but i mean it's true if you really want to make sure that someone understands what you're talking about i guess you've really got to carefully define your terms i mean this sounds like i just added five more pages onto every meteorology problem that ever existed right it's like make sure you define all your variables and that you're all starting with the same thing before you even continue Right, and if, if you want to read the paper, it is open access, or the, the abstract. A few of the examples of words in there, which we might pick on a couple of these, are confounding, random, uniform, and normal. Yeah. Normal is the one that I uh-huh. see the most... Pro- if, if I say something is normally distributed, that means something vastly different to me. I know, than- and, and I always think, you know, 90 degrees to what? That's my normal. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, mm-hmm. doesn't... Yeah, it, whereas Gaussian distribution is not necessarily what people are going to be thinking. No, exactly. Or or a uniform distribution. Or random is a whole other rabbit hole, especially if oh, you start boy. talking about things in computer science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, we haven't learned anything from this paper except for the fact that we all don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One thing that I thought was interesting in the paper is there was very little specialized jargon. <laughs> yes, yes, there was. It was quite quite a refreshing read, I think. <laughs> it, it was one of the few papers where they're talking about these cognitive processes that I don't get lost very early on in. Uh, yeah, the knowing and believing part I thought was going to be um, worse than it was, but it just touched on it just enough to make you go, huh, yeah. Exactly. So if you have an idea of what you know or believe or believe that you know, (laughs) we would love to hear your feedback on that, as well as any feedback on the solar system series that we're doing. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? You can get a hold of us at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together we are at Don't Panic Geo. Uh, swing on over to our Slack channel. We're in the software underground.org on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you're interested in supporting our podcast and help us defray some of our costs for bringing you these awesome interviews like Dr. Jim Head, then you can do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 